If you have a Bible, we'll be in James chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback in a seat in front of you or underneath you. James chapter 1, again, welcome. Uh, glad to have you here this morning with us. Uh, my name is Mike Skinner. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at FCQ. Uh, glad that you've joined us. We'll be in James chapter 1 this morning. Uh, those of you who know me know that I am a bit of a competitive person. Uh, some witnesses in the room. Uh, a couple a couple summers ago, we took a group to El Salvador uh, to uh, build a well in El Salvador. And there are still some stories, stories from El Salvador that haven't been told, uh, that might not be told. Uh, I think Chris and Michelle remember, uh, one night we played spades uh, in the... So the trash talking started to happen, uh, and the trash talking soon turned to tears, uh, and it was just just not our best moment uh, as a group on the mission trip building a well uh, for people. But I get in this mode, right, where I'm just, there's nothing that matters to me more than winning, whatever it is that we're doing. It doesn't have to even be something real, right? It can be a made-up competition. And the other person doesn't even have to know about it. I just have to know that we're competing and that I'm winning, right? And that's enough for me. Uh, and so, I mean, there have been points where I have declined an invitation to play a game with somebody just because I know I'm not going to be able to handle it. And this is someone that I can't make a fool of myself in front of uh, at this stage in our relationship, so just not going to play. Um, a few years back, a handful of years back, I was working at a summer camp. And uh, at the summer camp, this was like my time to have my competitive spirit shine, um, and it, it really came out in a strong way. We had a, I had nine and ten-year-olds, we'd have 29 and ten-year-olds who'd come in in a week, and then they would all go out again, and, and the, every week on a Tuesday night, there'd be this big tournament, this big like volleyball-type tournament, um, and here's the thing, the, the, the teams that our cabin was paired up with in a bracket were all older than us, so we lost every week, like the first game, like we never got even to the second round, and it was just miserable. For a competitive person, coaching on the sidelines is miserable. The kids would cry, all these things, all right? So, so about the third week of the, the summer, I decide, you know what, forget this. We're going to get ready for this competition. So we cancel all the activities for the afternoon, and I take our kids out into a field, and we have, like, a training session. Uh, and so we've got, I mean, we're doing drills. We're going over plans and, and plays and all kinds of things like that. Um, later, I'm pulled aside and told that if I can't control myself, I will no longer get to attend such an uh, event on Tuesday nights. Uh, I will tell you, we won that game. We won that night um, against the older kids. Um, there was also this uh, air hockey table game. You familiar with air hockey? Uh, it's like ping pong table, a little bit smaller, and you have the puck, and, and you push it back and forth. You might not know this about me, but I am somewhat of a living legend um, when it comes to air hockey. Uh, and, and for one of, the, one of the, uh, the activities during the day at camp, we had this like, huge gymnasium, like three gyms stacked up side by side. Uh, and we just went and played for a couple hours. And in one of the corners, there was an arcade. Uh, and you could just go into the little arcade area and play some games. And there's this air hockey table. Um, and I went probably eight weeks of camp without being defeated, um, just playing every day. And yes, if you're wondering, I did keep a number of how many games I won uh, and how many days I'd gone undefeated. Um, and it was, just kind of, it was just kind of a big deal to me. I'm super competitive, right? So I'm trash-talking little kids. I mean, all, the whole nine yards, right? Beating counselors, too, but it's easy to beat 12-year-olds. If you're a competitive person, that really feeds your ego uh, when you get to play kids a lot. Um, so anyways, one week we had a camper. We'll name him Billy, okay, just for our purposes. We had Billy. And Billy was an interesting kind of camper because he wasn't there just to enjoy camp. He was there because his parents wanted a vacation. Uh, so he comes for a week, and normally you have 20 kids that come for a week, and then they go back off, right? They come for a week, and they go off, and we should in and out, in and out every week. Well, Billy's parents decided that their week off with no Billy was so great that they wanted to do it again. And so they left him there for a second week. 
And then after two weeks, they're like, a third week would be really nice. So they left him there for a third week as well. And so it's interesting to, to get to, to build this relationship with Billy over three weeks. And, and during the third week, about two and a half weeks in, I started noticing something about Billy that I'd never noticed before. And I was kind of surprised that I hadn't, I hadn't seen it before. He was a great kid. Um, but I started noticing that, that Billy could be kind of a brat when it came to playing games with other kids. Uh, and he would, I mean, he was a little bit older than the other kids, and he would kind of taunt them and make fun of them and just kind of brag about it and all these other things. And it really started getting under my nerves. I was like, oh, don't be like that, kid. And so I was talking to another counselor um, during uh, an evening activity one night, and I was complaining about Billy and just kind of the way he could kind of be a jerk to the other kids. And the counselor started laughing. And I don't understand why they're laughing. And, and he said, it's just funny that, that, you would, that you would complain about that. And now in my mind, he put a little too much emphasis on the you. It's funny that you should complain about that. Uh, so I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, about two hours ago, I watched you play air hockey with some kids. Uh, and there were some pretty intense things said and shouted and things like that. And it just hit me like this wave of conviction, right? Billy was a perfect kid when he came to camp. But after two weeks of knowing me, he was now just this bratty, right, competitive, just out of control kind of kid. I, I, if you have kids, I think you, you'll see this. And, and I've seen this in, in leadership ever since, you know, since I was a youth pastor, since I worked in the camp. The people you lead, the people that are around you often start to mimic you. They start to pick up on your characteristics for good or for bad, and that's the real scary part, right? When you see things that, that you don't like about yourself and your kids are doing it. And so people complain about their kids. Ah, oh, it's so annoying when she does that. And you want to be like, yeah, that's what we think when you do that, right? That's what annoys us about you. Your kids are, are mimicking kind of your characteristics. Um, so as, a, as, as the pastor here, anytime I come across a text that really convicts me, um, that really makes me stop and think and, and work, through, work through some things in my own heart, um, I want to share it with you guys. I want to, to take some time and, and just kind of stop whatever we're doing and just kind of look at it. Um, because my general principle is if, if, I'm, if, it, if it means something to me and if it, if it really convicts me, it's probably going to convict the people that I lead uh, and the people that I'm, I'm spending time with and, and living life with. Um, so we're going to take a break uh, out of our Acts series. We're preaching through the book of Acts, also called the sermon series that will never end. Um, and we'll, we'll jump back in next week. Um, but we're going to look in James this morning at a text that, that I've been wrestling with. Um, Chapter 1, we'll be in James 1, verse 19. I was teaching uh, through James to some high schoolers not too long ago. Got to this text, and, and it was really just convicted. All right, James 1, verse 19. Um, read with me. James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Okay, so, so James is um, hitting at um, a problem that, that Christians have. Okay, I would say most Christians that I know, it's a problem that I certainly have in my life. And it's, it's the idea that we hear more of God's word and more of the, the things that Jesus would have us do as we follow him. We hear more of that than we actually put into our lives. On a whole, I mean, I can say this for myself, I would imagine it's true for us. We're more hearers than we are doers. 
I mean, I can think, I mean, probably across the room right now, all of us in an instant could think of something that we know we should do, we know we should stop, we just haven't gotten around to it yet. So we were reading the scriptures, or we were listening to a sermon, or something like that, and we were convicted, we're like, yes, I've got to start doing that, or no, I've got to stop doing that, but it just never happened. Because we hear more than necessarily we do. And if, I mean, if, if you can't right now think of one or two things like that, I would suggest just this afternoon, read the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Matthew 5 through 7. You'll have plenty there uh, to deal with. We, we hear what, what a life following Jesus should look like, but we, we just don't do it necessarily. We don't always put it into practice. It's what an author, Neil Cole, would call being educated beyond our level of obedience, we, we just know more than we do. We're educated about the Bible, about the things that Jesus calls us to do, more than we obey. And it's a dangerous place to be, and this is what James is pointing out here. And so he gives us this uh, metaphor. I love it. Uh, James usually speaks in pictures. It's one of the great things about the book of James. He has all these different metaphors and illustrations um, that, that are really very interesting. And he, he says that the person who hears the word, so the person who, who listens to a sermon or who reads the scriptures and, and they hear the word, Jesus says, you need to do this. You need to follow me here. You need to stop doing this. But they don't do it. He says, that's like a guy who looks in a mirror. He says in verse 24, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This kind of absurd image of this guy checking himself out in a mirror and then he leaves and as soon as he walks away, he's like, oh, man, what do I look like? I call it the man in the mirror syndrome. Okay, I think we all have a big case of the man in the mirror syndrome. And, yes, I do have Michael Jackson jokes um, for that title. I thought about learning how to moonwalk um, for the sermon, but I have other things to do um, with my life. Um, I, I think, again, this is, this is a, a big problem for Christians. This is a big problem for you and I, particularly in the time period that we're living in where we have some of the best Bible teaching available to us ever. I mean, if you go back 50 years, you were stuck with what your pastor told you, right? I don't pretend that I'm any kind of world-class preacher, but at your fingertips, most of you on your phone right now could get some of the best preachers alive today, some of the best teachers alive get to go down to Houston's first and listen to Bible studies. And we have great teaching. We have great means to hear the word. But sometimes we, we look in the mirror and we, we turn away and we don't do it. And, and so looking in the mirror would be like reading the scriptures and, and then understanding that this is who I am. This is the sin that I have. This is who God is. This is what he's called me to do. And then we, we read it and we hear it and we, we walk away and, and it never amounts to anything in our lives. And I think there's, there's tons of examples of this. So we, we read in the scriptures over and over and over again that you and I are supposed to share our faith. We're supposed to witness. We're supposed to spread the gospel. We're supposed to be missionaries in the places where we live. But yet over and over again, at least I find myself being quiet. Or maybe I should ask to pray. Or maybe I should ask if I can share my story. And, and we read in the scriptures over and over again how we're supposed to use our money and how we're supposed to steward our finances and our resources. And yet we find ourselves, again, just stockpiling things for ourselves, hoarding on, being greedy. We hear it, but we, we don't do it. We know that there are these certain things in our lives, these addictive kind of sins, these habitual things, temptations that we fall into. And we know we shouldn't keep going back to those things, but we just keep doing it. We've heard, but we don't do. And for James, this is a very, very dangerous thing. If you, you look back in verse 21 here, he says, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word 
Look what he says next. Which is able to save your souls. The word which is able to save your souls. And we think, well, well only God saves us. Only his grace is what saves us. And that's true. Um, but, but again, think of salvation as, as we've um, unpacked in the past few weeks as a much bigger thing than just you going to heaven after you die, right? Salvation starts now. It's finished when you die, when Jesus comes back on the new heavens and the new earth. Salvation is, is being rescued socially, physically, spiritually, being brought out of the bondage that you were once in. It starts now. And he says, look, if you don't do the word, you don't get that. <clears throat> I mean, you can hear all you want, but it's not going to do you any good. You won't ever actually start living in the salvation Jesus bought for you on the cross. Just receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And again, if you look in verse 25, this is one who looks into the law and perseveres, being not a hearer but a doer, he will be blessed. He'll be blessed. He'll be the envious one. He'll have the life, true, rich, deep life that Jesus bought us, that Jesus came to give us. And so to hear the word and to not do it would be disastrous, would be damning. But so many times, I mean, I find myself in that exact same place. So here's what I want to do this morning in a little bit of the time that we have. I want to look at um, three reasons why we ignore or or why we um, don't do the word And then three reasons, maybe how we can fix that, how we can walk into more obedience with that, okay? So so here are the three reasons um, um, that that maybe sometimes we don't do the word. We don't put our hearing into action. I think sometimes, one, we ignore it. Sometimes, two, um, we qualify it. And sometimes, three, we forget it. Uh, So we'll start with with just ignoring it. This is just simply not engaging with the word of God given to us, his scriptures given to us, or at least not engaging with it in a significant way, okay? And notice this is not who James is talking to. James is talking to people who are hearing the word. He's assuming, this this is not the pagans, right? The people out on the street who never go to church, never read their Bible, things like that. This is you and I who hear, who get the messages, but just don't do it. But for some of us, even some of us who attend on Sunday morning, I think we still would be guilty of ignoring the word. Can I just say this? If Sunday morning is the only time you hear the word, I don't think that's enough. I, mean, I don't think that's even close to enough. I don't think you even started the kind of the trajectory there. I would consider that ignoring the word. I mean, surely you know this. You can go to church your entire life and never once. It's not hard to zone me out. It's hard to pay attention, right? It's hard to actually hear something. You can church attendance your whole life. And that doesn't mean anything. Some of us, I mean, we just don't ever engage with the scriptures. We never get to a point where we're ever actually hearing them at all. Again, this is not who James is talking to, but I think some of us might be there. We just never, never really engage with them. Or... We might hear and learn, but we never apply. And we'll we'll unpack the difference between those in in a little bit, but there's a huge difference. And if you don't apply, you've ignored. You might as well have not even touched it. So so we ignore it. But but others of us, we, we qualify the scriptures, which means we are engaging with them, we are hearing them, but then we rationalize them away. We figure out ways that they don't apply to us. This is one of the most creative things Christians can do. We're not always the smartest bunch, but when it comes to getting out of something Jesus told us to do, we're pretty creative. We're pretty good at it. So you'll hear things like this, or maybe you've told yourself things like this. Well, that's just not responsible. 
well, that's just impossible for, I mean, my life and for the people around me in, in this situation just wouldn't work. It, it's just not going to work like that. Or that doesn't apply to me. Or here's what he really meant by that. So here's what, one of my favorite quotes, quotes is, is from Chris, and, and he said, uh, Chris is a, a master's degree in theology, and he said, a long time ago, I'm sure he remembers this, he said that I spent thousands of dollars and got a master's degree um, in theology to learn that Jesus meant what he said. Uh, he, he actually believed what he was saying, and he wanted people to do it and to believe it as well. Um, there's an author, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Germany uh, during the Nazi regime, uh, and he says this, talking about how people kind of interpret their way out of certain commands. He uses the illustration of a father and a child, and it's brilliant, so I'll read it to you. He says, a father would say to his child, go to bed. And the child knows exactly what to do, but if he was a Christian child who learned how to interpret the way that we interpret, he would argue this way. Father has told me to go to bed. What he really means is that I look tired, and he doesn't want me to be tired. I can overcome my tiredness by going to bed or by playing video games. So although Father says to go to bed, what he really wants me to do is go play video games so I won't be tired. <laughs> the teacher goes, however, Father is not going to accept this. The child will receive punishment. He's getting spanked and thrown in the bed, okay? But so often that's what we do. So, so Jesus says, sell some stuff that you have and give it to the poor. And here's what we do with it. I mean, we laugh. Here's what we do. He doesn't really want us to sell things and give away our money. He just wants us to not love money. So I'll just internally make sure I don't love money. And that's because that's what he, he really meant. I mean, he didn't really want me to obey these kind of commands. And we, we kind of get behind God's own words. We, we qualify. We interpret. We rationalize. So some of us, we engage. But then we, we before it actually gets into action, we ask ourselves out of the the commitment to it, right? We, we interpret ourselves out of having to respond um, to what the word would say to us and, and would require of us. So we, we ignore, sometimes we qualify, and then oftentimes I think we just forget. I think this is the main point of, of the illustration, right? We look in the mirror and then immediately we're distracted. We forget. I'm a very firm believer that most sermons die by the end of lunch. They just do. Okay, you're at Olive Garden, you finish that big plate of pasta, you got a full stomach, you're going home taking a nap, all right? You wake up, it's over. You might have been a little motivated during the sermon, you might have been a little emotional, you might have thought of a couple things to do. By lunch, though, it's dead, it's gone, it's not coming back. And I'm talking about myself, okay? I mean, I don't know about you. But every time I'll, I'll preach, and 30 minutes later, it's like it never even happened. Because we forget, we look in the mirror, and we turn around, and we're distracted. We hear something else, or we see something else. So, so sometimes we, we just don't engage with the scriptures. Sometimes we engage, but question ourselves out of actually committing to them. Sometimes we engage with them. We believe it. We want to do it. We have that desire, but we just forget. We never, in a sense, get around to it. We have like the short-term memory loss, which works particularly well when things are going well for us, right? If, if we're in a hard place in life, we'll really dig in the scriptures. We'll really try to find out what God wants us to do. But then when things start going better for us, we start thinking that we've got it under our own control, right? We can handle it. That's why in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, when God is bringing his people, the Israelites, into the promised land, he's going to tell them over and over and over again, when you get into the promised land, don't forget that I saved you. Don't forget all the things that I did. And unfortunately, the history of God's people is just a continued example in 
God's people forgetting what he did when things start to go well for them. So we ignore, we qualify, and we forget. Um, now, three ways we might walk out of this and, and into um, being more people who do and not just hear. We, we maybe should focus on the word, we should obey the word, and we should saturate ourselves in the word. Okay, so we should, we should focus on the word. We should intentionally engage with the scriptures. I'm a very firm believer that you and I need to establish some kind of firm, habitual pattern of reading the scriptures on our own. If you're just coming to church on Sunday morning, here's what you're doing. Um, you're, you're like a baby who's being fed. And, and you're not feeding yourself during the week. And that's dangerous for lots of reasons. I'm not patronizing you. That's, that's dangerous. Other people can feed you the wrong things. Other people can leave. You, you've got to learn to grow up just like every human being and be able to take care of yourself and feed yourself. You've got to be able to open up the scriptures and and hear from the Lord yourself. You got to spend time throughout the week. And, and so, this, I mean, this looks differently for, for different kinds of people, right? But, but whatever it is, some kind of habitual um, saturating yourselves in the scriptures. If you look in verse 25 here, he says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, there's an interesting little phrase there, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets their doer acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The Greek in um, 25 at the very beginning here, who looks into the perfect law, is actually much stronger than just looks into. It's, it's almost like fixes his gaze on in a way that nothing will distract him from that. I mean, he, he concretes his eyes onto whatever's in front of him. He looks intently, he gazes, he longs into what the law is saying to him. This is a much different way to read the scriptures and hear the word than I think most of us normally do. I think oftentimes we, we hear the word and we read the scriptures like a commercial. It gets our three minutes of time and it makes its pitch to us and then we go on to the next thing. We get an email devotion in the morning and we read it and then we're off to the next thing, to the next conversation. To focus on it, to look intently would be to set aside everything else and say, what's here? What is he trying to tell me? What can I get from this? Um, I, I work a lot with kids with special needs, and, and I have a little buddy named Spencer. And Spencer has severe autism, um, and uh, Spencer has taught me lots of things about life. But one of the things he's taught me is to go through life slowly and to look at things for the first time. Um, so Spencer is obsessed with all things water and all things like sprinkler systems. Um, and the kid can't tie his shoes, but if there's a sprinkler system within five miles, he knows exactly where it is, and he's going to go get it, okay? And so I walk fast. I, I've just got stuff to do. I've got problems on my mind. I've got a to-do list. Um, so I'm walking fast. Spencer, my little 10-year-old buddy, just strolls, right? Like he has not a care in the world. I'm dragging him along, okay? And if he, if he were to find a water sprinkler, here's what he would do. He'd stop. You wouldn't be able to drag him anymore at that point. And he'd kneel down and just look at it. 30 minutes. <laughs> and after 30 minutes, he changed directions. <laughs> and look at it from another direction. Like he had never seen anything like that for the first time. And he just gazed at it. He doesn't need to touch it. Doesn't need it to do anything. He just looks at it. He's just examining it. He's taking it in. Autistic um, people, they, they have this kind of sensory overload, this data that's coming in from all... We, we get really good at um, screening things out in our lives, right? So right now there's a thousand data sensory things that are coming onto your body that you're intentionally ignoring so that you can focus on whatever it is. 
that you want to focus on. Autistic people don't have that same kind of ability. So he really does see everything like it's the first time he's seeing it. He really does just take it in for what it's worth. And that's what James is saying we should do with the scriptures. We shouldn't just let it be a commercial in our life, this little three-minute pitch. We should just sit down and look at it and read it and think about it and pray over it. We should look intently into it. And, and, and then to focus on the scriptures, to not ignore them, would mean that we'd also need to apply them to our lives. And there is a huge difference between hearing and listening and even learning and then applying. And if you never get to an application, you might as well have ignored. So here's, here's the difference. And, and here's how I can I'll show you this. Um, if someone comes to me, say a high schooler, and they want help in reading their scriptures and they want to um, kind of just get into a routine of reading and, and understanding how to do that on their own. Um, I, I'll give them, kind of walk through with them, right, and we'll start doing that. And, and I've learned this from, from older men and women who have done this with me, right, who have sat down and kind of showed me how to read the scriptures. Um, and, and here's what I try to get them to do, okay, read the scriptures and apply it to something in your life. And here's what they come up with, 10 times out of 10, okay, no matter what it is, say they're reading something about love, First John, love one another. Here will be the application. I need to love people more. And so that's true. You need to love people more. Here's the problem with that, though. Here's the problem with getting platitudes from interpreting the scriptures, which I think is what we do most of the time when we try to interpret. We get these broad platitudes. We'll just do an experiment right here, right now, okay? Raise your hand if you can say, I need to love people more. And my hand's raised. I could love people a little bit more. I did not need to read the Bible to learn that, right? I didn't need to think about that. That wasn't something that I really need to be like, oh, wow, I need to treat people better. Now, maybe I, I just have, am clueless as to how I'm living, and that kind of reminds me. For the most part, we, we would have already known that before we came to the scriptures. Here would be the big step with application. Be specific. And when you've been specific, be more specific. And when you've been more specific, be more specific than that. So here's how it would work out. I'm reading the scriptures in First John and love one another, and I'm praying over it, I'm looking into it, I'm going... Man, God, teach me, teach me what it is I need to get from this passage. Teach me how to be a doer, not a hearer. And then it hits me, 10.35 a.m. today, when I interact with that person, I interact with every day, and I can't stand them. Instead of saying something snarky or sarcastic, I'll compliment them. I'll ask them how I can pray for them. I'll go out of my way to do something nice for them. I've got a name. I've got a date. I've got a location. I've got a time. And if I have it, I've got seconds. That's specific. That will lead you to action. That will be hearing and doing. And that's a step I'm so afraid none of us make when we read the scriptures. We read and we come away with these huge platitudes that never happen to work themselves into our lives. But when he looks intently, he focuses on it. We'll just spend some time there. And then would, would try to think of, I mean, you're not going to, right? I mean, you're not going to in one day because you read a passage all of a sudden become Mother Teresa, just the most loving person in the world. What you can do, though, is take a step, a small but faithful step, maybe at 1030 that morning, maybe at 3 o'clock that afternoon. So specific. So we need to focus, and then we need to obey, which sounds really simple, right? I mean, that sounds like a no-brainer, but we need to obey what the scriptures say. So this is not only engaging but this is then committing to doing that, committing to putting feet um, to that commitment. It's trusting that obedience will bring us blessing. So look again in verse 21. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word, 
which is able to save your souls. And then in 25 again, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, and hearer, not a doer, who acts, he will be blessed, or a doer, not a hearer, who acts, um, he will be blessed in his doing. It's interesting, he calls the law perfect, and then the law of liberty, the law of freedom. That's not how we think of laws. We think of laws as constricting us. We think of laws as keeping us from doing stuff that we want to do, and things that we like, and things that would be a good idea to us. But in the scriptures, from the very beginning, all the way through, when God gives a law, when he gives a command, when he reveals his will for your life, it's always a good thing. It's meant to lead you toward life. It's meant to lead you toward joy, toward freedom. I mean, at this camp, we would tell the kids, right, you got to drink lots and lots and lots of water. And I never told one kid that because I knew they hated water and I liked to see them suffer. I told them that because if they didn't drink water, they're going to get a headache and be really sick and not have fun like the rest of us were having fun. I was trying to lead them into better things. I had a bigger picture than they did. This is how God's law operates for us. And so we, we need to, what Bonhoeffer would say, have simple obedience, which is where we hear and we obey. Soren Kierkegaard, um, who was a, a philosopher, a theologian, he said this. He said, some people read scripture like disobedient subjects responding to their king's decree. So the king goes off and, and sends them back a decree. And instead of obeying the word from their king, they set out to interpret it. And every day they offer new interpretations about what the king meant and soon they have so many different interpretations that they get lost and ignore them and never obey him. And the king again comes back and is not too pleased about it. So I can think of, I mean, if you were to read the Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, and if you were to look at them holistically, look at how they're structured, you would see that in Matthew and Luke, the command from Jesus to love your enemies is central. Might even be and I've argued this elsewhere, it might even be the most central command to following Jesus. It's what he was known for, dying for other people. He says, you want to come after me, this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to love the people who persecute us. We're going to pray for those who hate us. We're going to turn the other cheek when people strike us. But we don't like that command. We don't like it on a national level. We don't like it on a personal level. We don't like it on any level. We don't even like it on a mind level. So what we do is we question it, we qualify it, we interpret it. And, and we come up with a thousand different ways that that might mean, of what it might mean. I mean, there was one man who uh, uh, said that you could love somebody while killing them. Because he had to have some kind of way where he could kill another human being, right? He had to have that in his world. And so he had to work out a system where he could still be loving that person internally while he was killing them. This is kind of the, the nonsense that we get ourselves into. And here's what happens. We get thousands of different ter- interpretations of what love your enemies mean. And at the end of the day... Every single one of those people who hold those interpretations love exactly who they would love anyway and hate exactly who they would have hated anyways. There's no change at all. I mean, even if they just would have obeyed their interpretation, at least that'd be a step, right? But we qualify it and we interpret it and we never, ever actually get around to doing it. And this is bad news for James. In chapter 2, it's like faith without works, it's dead. It doesn't exist. You've lied to yourself. Jesus will say, many are going to say to me, chapter 7 of Matthew, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I didn't know you. You didn't, you didn't do my will. People who hear the word and don't do it are like people who build their house on sand. When the storm comes, it's not going to stand. They will have nothing to stand on. But people who put it in action are like a rock. So we need simple obedience. And, and what I've learned and, and continue to learn 
is that oftentimes the only way to understand a command is to obey it. That you can't actually understand some commands until you obey them. The big words for this would, would be orthopraxy often leads to orthodoxy. So right action oftentimes lead to right thinking. And we normally think about it opposite. And it does work opposite. Sometimes we have to think correctly and then go act correctly. But sometimes it's actually the other way around. That in acting and being obedient, we learn why we were supposed to be obedient and what this obedience was all about. I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple months ago, I was at a uh, retreat and we spent the morning in prayer. Uh, and so after about four or five hours of prayer, um, we had a time of communion. And so um, the leader got up and did his communion deal, getting us ready for communion. It was, I mean, 100% kind of Baptist, um, what you expect. Uh, and then when he was done, he said, in the back on tables or communion are the elements, a little cup of juice and a little piece of bread. When you're ready, go serve yourself and then you'll be dismissed. And I had an unexpected to me, I wasn't expecting this, I had like a crisis of faith. Like out of nowhere, like my heart started beating fast. And I started kind of sweating. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And here's the thought that came to me. I can't serve myself communion. That's not how communion works. It's not a fast food drive through I get communion from the church. I get communion from a brother or sister who's witnessing to the death of Christ to me. And I freaked out. And I, had, I didn't expect to freak out about that. That wasn't something that I thought would throw me for a loop. But it did. And here's why. I grew up in the Baptist world where you took communion by yourself. Where it's this kind of fast food drive through thing. But here's what changed my life. About six years ago, I started coming to this church. And inherited a system where you took communion from somebody. Every time you took it. Somebody would be a foot away from you giving it to you. I never sat down and thought about how that is the more appropriate biblical way to do communion. I just did it over and over and over again for about six years and then I got to this place in my life and was asked to serve it to myself and I went I can't do that now throughout those six years of studying and things like that I had read and and studied on how community and kind of this family atmosphere is the appropriate means for communion but that wasn't the actual motivation for my change in beliefs see what happened there I did it and in doing it I learned why we were supposed to do it why that command why that structure is even there i think way too many times orthopraxy leads to orthodoxy this is why if someone comes to me and goes i know i'm supposed to give money to to the poor but i just don't feel like it and i know that one's a cheerful giver so i don't think maybe i should give this is why i say give they go what if i really don't like it surely god don't want me to do it out of guilt and because like i'm just mad about it i'm like well give why well because maybe and by virtue of them giving They'll start to learn why they should give. They'll start to feel why God's commanded them to give, what that does in their life, what that does in the community around them. Sometimes just simple obedience leads to where we, we really need to get to go. So sometimes we ignore, we need to focus. Sometimes we qualify, we need to just simply obey, and sometimes we forget. And for this, we need to saturate ourselves in the word. We need to surround ourselves with it. We need constant repetition constant, constant, constant repetition around us. Which again, why just Sunday morning I don't think is enough for you. I could preach for an hour. I still think it will be dead by lunch. I could preach for two hours. We wouldn't have a church the next week. So I, I just don't know. There's there are a whole lot of other options other than, I mean, just repeating. I mean, just repetition constantly throughout the week. One way that I think you and I should and can do this is by memorization. Memorizing the scriptures, putting them in our minds so that they're in the fiber of our being, so that they're in the very imagination, so that the very way we think is, is structured and shaped by the scriptures. Um, if you have your worship guide, open it up 
It's not open already. Uh, and you'll see on the right side under the notes, um, we're going to do um, a May memorization mission. Love the alliteration, okay? Three M's. We are in church. How to do things proper. Uh, the idea here is that we are, I'm challenging you to memorize the entire chapter of Romans 12, okay, in the month of May. Um, so we'll just memorize Romans 12. Um, I know already some of you are like, I can't memorize very well. I was not a good student in school, all those kind of things. From doing this, I will tell you, I think you'll be very much surprised with how much you actually can memorize if you try to do it. Here's the other thing I would tell you. If I were to tell you today that I was going to give you $1,000 for every chapter of the Bible you memorized by tomorrow night, guess who would be good at memory? You would. You'd go home right after lunch, right? And you'd find the shortest chapters in the Bible. I would suggest the book of Psalms. A few chapters were just three or four verses. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. But yet the scriptures say that his word is, is more precious than gold. Those who follow him. And so we should ferociously just rip into it. Memorize it. So, so I even have a little guideline here for you if you want to follow a, a little timeline. Um, so we'll spend the week doing 12, 1 to 5, and then 12, 6 through 13, and then 14 to 21. Only 20 verses, um, but here's a way you can join us as the church as we seek to memorize. I, I picked Romans 12, went back and forth to different chapters, um, because it does have a lot of short kind of intentional commands, real clear. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. I think it's just a good um, chapter to memorize. So we need uh, repetition, we need memorization, and then, and here's such an important one, we need accountability. We need people around us who will check in on us, who will help us, who will reinforce the scriptures, who will encourage us, who will walk alongside us. When somebody comes to me and they've been struggling with, with a sin maybe in their life or they've been struggling to follow Jesus in obedience in an area of their life and they've yet to invite someone into their life to help them do that, my response to them is, you haven't tried yet. That's not an attempt, really. I mean, you can hear that, yes, I'm not supposed to respond with such anger to my spouse. I know I should love them like Christ loved the church. I just can't help it. Sometimes, oh, they just get me so frustrated, and I lash out in anger. I know I shouldn't do that, but I keep doing that over and over and over again. And I go, well, well who have you been accountable to? I mean, who's calling you every day asking you how you're doing? Who's sitting down with you talking through how you should be acting, how you can respond to those situations? Oh, well, Nobody. Well, then you might really feel in your heart like you need to do that. I don't think you've tried yet. If you, haven't, if you haven't learned by now, I mean, I think you should. There are certain things in our life that we can't do on our own. There are certain temptations that I have, certain things that lure me in, that I cannot stand against on my own. I just can't. And I can try really hard and get myself in this cycle, this circle of sin for the rest of my life. Or I can invite other people into my life and say, help me fight this. And that's the way some sin gets broken. You've got to have accountability. This looks like all kinds of different things for all kinds of different people. But, but I know high schoolers who, who have to call a trusted adult before they go on a date. And say, this is where I'm going on the date. This is what we're doing on the date. This one I'll be back. And when they get back on the date, they call the trusted adult. And say, this is what we did. This is where we went. And I'm now home. Because they, we need to be trained. We need to be discipled. We need to be watched over. Why? Again, not so that we've been constricted, but because we're after freedom. We're after joy. We're after salvation. We're after what Jesus bought for us on the cross. Stanley Hauerwas says, you, you learn who you are only by making yourself accountable to the judgments of other people. 
And what he's saying there is not that, that you and I should just invite ourselves to have stones thrown at us and people tear us down. He's just saying this simply, you are the best liar in the world to you. No one knows how to lie to you like you do. <clears throat> it's just the truth. You can convince yourself of anything. That's why sometimes when you start explaining your thought process to other people, you stop because it sounds kind of stupid. <laughs> You're like, I guess saying it out loud, yeah, that doesn't make too much sense. I'm a hypochondriac, so I, I, I mean, I'll self-diagnose myself with all kinds of things, right? And I'll go try to explain to somebody else why I have stage four cancer. <laughs> and it, they, I mean, just the just the process of explaining it really gets me out, right? It gets me into the clear. People have this great ability to call us on our just craziness. Sometimes the only way we know who we really are is to let other people give their opinions. You have to invite people to do that. Hey, will you walk with me? Do I, do I trust you enough to let you speak truth into my life? Because we've got to saturate ourselves in the word. So two final questions we'll wrap up here this morning. The first one is where do you line up with this text? Are you educated beyond your obedience level? I can tell you I am. I mean by far. Do you have man in the mirror syndrome? I mean, are you leaving with that diagnosis? And the second question is, what are you going to do about it? Because here's the temptation, right? As I'm teaching through James to these high schoolers, I'm like, oh, wow, this passage is really hitting me in the chest. But there's this temptation, and I even feel it. It's whispering to me to not do this, to hear this about hearing and doing, and not go do anything about it. To know that there are certain things I've never put into action, but to just let that be another thing I've heard and ignored, or heard and qualified, or heard and forgot about. What are we going to do? What steps are we going to take? How can we focus ourselves? How can we obey? How can we saturate ourselves? My hope, my prayer is that we would be a people who hear the word and who do it, who look intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and be not hearers who forget, but doers who obey and who find the blessing laid out for us by our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I, I love you. We love you. We thank you for um, all the blessings that you've given us, for the grace that you've shown us, um, for the scriptures that you've given us, Father. We, we ask that you would open up our eyes to areas where maybe we have been disobedient uh, or have just kind of played some games with you. Uh, we ask that you would show us a path forward of obedience um, where we can find the freedom that you purchased for us. Um, not because we're scared and not because we're guilty or anything like that, but, but just because you have so much, much, much more for us out there. And so we want to follow you um, and, and find the blessing that you've, you've laid out for us, the good works you prepared in advance for us to, to complete in you. We ask that you would um, speak in us and shape us and give us um, your spirit and the strength to follow after you faithfully. It's in your son's um, perfect name that all of God's people said. Amen. Amen.